This is Jerry McArdle sitting in for Eileen Dunn on The God Slot. Cause I gotta have Fresh from his Oscar win for La Grande Bellezza or The Great Beauty as Best Foreign Film, Italian director Paolo Sorrentino's next project is a TV series about a fictional American pope. Given Sorrentino's wildly inventive style, the series will likely skirt between the sacred and profane. The working title is The Young Pope, and the 43-year-old director hopes to create fictional mysteries and scandals within the walls of the Vatican. While much of the conversation about the Noah film has focused on theology and the degree to which it strays from the biblical text, few people seem to notice the all-white cast, according to Will Gaffney, an Episcopal priest and associate professor of Hebrew and Old Testament at the Lutheran Seminary in Philadelphia. I hoped at least there would be some beige people in the movie, she said, but there was no one visibly of colour. Well, we'll be talking about Noah later in the programme, but firstly we turn to books, and in particular author Michael Ardity, an English writer who explores religious themes in his works of fiction. Before writing fiction, Michael worked as a playwright and theatre reviewer, and when we spoke recently, I began by asking him why he used religious themes so often. Well, I haven't, I've never studied theology, though obviously I've read quite a lot of it, but I come from a family that has got divided religious affiliations, um, Anglican and Jewish, and I was sent to a Methodist public school. So right from the very beginning, I was aware of, you know, different attitudes to religion, different perspectives on the truth. And of course, if you're a novelist, you, you, you know, that's very good because you actually want different perspectives. You don't want to have a monolithic view of things. But actually, it sparked off my own interest. And all through my life, I've been interested in what I think are the fundamental questions. You know, is there a creator? If there's a creator, what is the purpose of creation? And what is therefore the purpose of individual lives, not least my own? Um, but at the same time, as a novelist, I'm very aware that, you know, even for non-religious characters, their attitudes to faith, their attitudes to the questions I've just mentioned about God, are very useful ways of defining them. I think they're much more interesting than, as it were, whether they live in a flat, in a house, what the cars they drive, all the sort of more materialistic questions that a, novel, a lot of um, novelists put to the fore. Um, and of course, Nowadays, when I talk at festivals and things, I'm always perhaps challenged about my subject matter. But in the past, in English and indeed in in Irish literature, these questions and these people would have been fundamental. Um, When Jane Austen was asked for her advice by a young writer on the the, the plots or the characters in fiction, she famously said, and I'm going to get it slightly wrong, that just to take two or three families in an English village... And indeed, that's what she did herself, but it was inconceivable then, both in fiction as in life, that there wouldn't have been a Mr Elton lurking somewhere in the hedgerow. The four books I've read, uh, Easter, uh, The Enemy of the Good, Jubilate and The Breath of Night, they're Catholic with a small c in that two of them are Roman Catholic and uh, two of them are Anglican. And then in The Enemy of the Good, you have, a very, very, you have some very strong Jewish characters. Do you meet a, a wide breadth of people from different faith backgrounds and talk to them about this to, to give you material for your novels? 
Well, yes, I, I, I certainly do meet people from all sorts of backgrounds. I'm afraid, you know, living in metropolitan London as I do, the majority of people I meet um, would probably define themselves as having no faith at all, um, or indeed a more sort of fashionable spirituality which might embrace sort of some Taoist or Buddhist principles. But basically everything one does when one researches, whether it's through books or through meeting people or just through um, a more general life experience, is filtered through one's novelist's imagination. Sometimes people say to you, oh, you know, have you put X or Y in a novel? Well, absolutely not. I mean, that would be impossible. Um, you take bits of other people's experience, but by the time you've imagined them yourself, they are actually almost unrecognizable. And it's the same with, you know, the different aspects of religion I've explored. Uh, I've wanted to explore it from, as you say, the, 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 in the celibate and um, Easter, they were uh, in, in different cases through an Anglican ordinand and then through various members of the Anglican clergy and through a, a much wider parish as they go through their Passion Week um, religious services. And then the breath of night was about a... A, a Roman Catholic missionary priest in the Philippines um, struggling perhaps with some of the demands of uh, working in a, a in a what was then a dictatorship and exploring in both theory and practice the, the tenets of liberation theology Jubilati if you like is set in Lourdes and though there are priests in the um, background the two characters the two central characters are a a woman with a um, brain-damaged husband who is a devout Catholic and a f television director who's there to make a film about the 150th anniversary of the apparitions who's a cradle Catholic but very much now um, uh, an atheist or as you say you know the enemy of the good where you have a mixture of Christians and Jews because I like to put other people's skins on. I think if I were writing everything from the perspective, my own perspective of a 50-something-year-old man in northwest London, um, I'd lose my own interest and a lot of readers very quickly. Can I talk to you about Jubilate for a moment? Because I want to talk yes. about sex. <laughs> because a book set in Lourdes. Yes, indeed. And uh, a book set in Lourdes. And here on the opening page, we open up with a man and woman in bed together who are not married. Uh, was that uh, breaking new ground? Did you get a lot of stick for that? Or was it, was it just accepted? Well, I'm delighted to say that m my novels have been very well received by the, you know, religious press um, here. So uh, I, I don't, the only, the only trouble I had, I think, was my very, very first novel, The Celibate, where I got a couple of sort of aggrieved letters from readers who told me that the protagonist wasn't celibate. Though I think if they'd had any knowledge of current English literature, they would know that a, a title, The Celibate, was probably a slight um, irony. But the... Um, the, the, the reason, of course, is that actually I think that sexuality and spirituality are, it's too easy to say, you know, two sides of the same coin, but they're both, you know, vital aspects of hu a human's personality and indeed, I think, of a God-given universe. Um, and in Jubilati, the main thrust of the novel is whether a woman who takes the, the sacrament of marriage very seriously... Um, although her husband has become like a little child, is going to give up the possibility of love 
Um, and of course, she, as I, believe that, you know, love in all its forms is a gift of God um, because of a sacrament that has to some extent, if not the sacrament, has, may not have lost its meaning, but her own marriage has become a sort of shell. You see, when other writers dealing with religious themes write about sex, they tend to do so in a very judgmental kind of way. I'm thinking here of the late, great Morris West, and I'm also thinking of the late Andrew Greeley, uh, you don't. There's no judgmentalism at all in your books. Well, I mean, I don't think that a novelist is there to pass judgment. Many other people in life pass judgments. I think a novelist is there... I mean, this is, again, this is slightly more doctrinaire than I would put it to myself otherwise, but a, do a novel should extend people's sympathies. Um, through my own reading of novels, I've been taken into places, into people's minds and hearts and lives that I would never meet in real life. Um, and I hope that my own novels will take some people into other areas as well. Um, I think we're all far too quick to pass judgment on other people's lives, and particularly their sex lives. We live in a very prurient society. Um, I don't think we have the right to do that. I mean, you know, we only have to look at Christ and, and the, 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 um, the, the, the stay, saying that has now become almost a cliché about throwing the first stone. He didn't. And indeed, of course, Pope Francis has taken that up now, whereas his two predecessors were all too quick to rush to judgments on um, sexual matters, which, of course, they then, we've now recently discovered, though I think it was an open secret before, that many of the main offenders have been members of their own church and indeed their own curia. Um, Pope Francis has basically said, I don't know the whole story. I'm not going to condemn people. That was Michael Ardity. His books are published by Arcadia. I've read four of them, and I'm currently reading the reprinted first novel, The Celibate, and I highly recommend them, particularly as the summer and summer holidays are approaching. And we'll put Michael's website link on our webpage. No. What did he say? He's going to destroy the world. My father said that one day, if man continued in his ways, the Creator would annihilate this world. Can it not be averted? He speaks to you. You must trust that he speaks in a way that you can understand. I saw water. Death by water. Nice on your life. A great flood is coming. We build a vessel to survive the storm. We build an ark. Well, that's a brief extract from the trailer to the film Noah, a film which, quite frankly, left me a bit puzzled. But to help tease out the merits and demerits from our Galway studios, I'm joined by lecturer in theology and ethics at Galway Mayo IT and our regular film correspondent, Barry Macmillan. Barry, even though the Ark was already a pretty crowded place, this film does come with a lot of its own baggage, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, quite. Uh, yep. Uh, Noah has stirred up a lot of controversy on its journey into cinemas. Uh, it was variously condemned by evangelical Christians in the United States for not following the Genesis narrative literally enough. And then it was also banned in some Muslim countries for contravening Islamic laws forbidding depictions of the prophets. And, and I don't, you, you didn't hear the start of our programme, but there we reported in our little news piece that uh, an Episcopal priest in the US complains that there are no black people in it. 
So there's a new one for you. <laughs> to, to add into the mix. Um, 130 yeah. million, Barry? 130 Absol- million? Are Paramount a bit worried? Absolutely. Uh, Paramount put a very substantial budget into this uh, and it would seem that they were, uh, initially at least, hoping to make a lot of this money back from ticket sales to religious groups in the US. However... Uh, so unnerved were Paramount by the original version that Darren Aronofsky uh, presented to them uh, that they took the film from him, they recut it at least five times uh, and they previewed each of those versions to various Christian focus groups. Christian uh, focus groups, not yes. Jewish focus groups because no, it is an Old Testament story. That's the interesting thing about this is that the, the uh, at least in the States, I mean there has been some um, kickback if you like from, uh, from some Jewish groups but it really seems to have been the evangelical Christians who are most uh, het up uh, about it. We're told that one of those five versions uh, began with a religious visual montage and concluded with a Christian rock song, which is something of an indicator uh, as to how far Paramount were willing to go to try and keep that constituency on board. However, none of the recut versions uh, gained any greater traction uh, with the focus groups. And in the end, Paramount, if you like, had to concede defeat uh, and go with uh, what they're now marketing as the singular vision uh, of Aronofsky's original version. He, he does bring something new and he does bring something exciting to the work that he does, though it's not always been commercial success. A few weeks ago, when we interviewed Charles Palato, the producer of the film Nicaea, currently in production, or is it in production? Uh, you asked him what kind of a film Nicaea would be. Would it be a religious epic, a historical drama, or indeed a devotional film? So, in similar vein, what kind of a film is Noah? Yes. Charles Parlato is convinced that the mere message of his film, Nicaea, uh, is so powerful that it will cause audiences to reassess their lives, to convert to Christianity, and that it will achieve that uh, on a budget of $35 million, which is very small in, in cinematic terms, and no star actors. Darren Aronofsky... Uh, had a budget, as we say, in excess of $130 million, the best computer graphics that that kind of money can buy, and three Oscar winners in the cast. So whether that indicates uh, on Aronofsky's part a lack of faith in the message of his film or that he's a better judge of what audiences, religious or otherwise, expect from the film-going experience, then time will tell. It's an odd film, though, isn't it? Noah is not an odd film. Noah is a relentlessly odd (laughs) film. No, that's not to say that it's bad, but it is quite mad. It's the most peculiar conflation of the original biblical narrative of the story of the flood, uh, significantly with all the possible environmentalist elements in the narrative radically pushed to the foreground. And then that mixed through with elements of the films The Lord of the Rings, Transformers and hovering in the background Kevin Costner's Great Folly, Waterworld. Somehow, uh, possibly through sheer chutzpah on Aronofsky's part, somehow it hangs together, but it only just hangs together. The Noah narrative, though, I mean, it's odd enough in itself, isn't it? Without Aronofsky having to make it any odder. So it presents <laughs> it presents a problem anyway for a director, doesn't it? To, to kind of get a, a practical logic in, in this narrative. 
Biblical texts are frequently um, quite impressionistic, uh, quite evocative, which, of course, is one of the things that lends them power. It's it's one thing to say, um, and God told Noah to build an ark and fill it with pairs of all the animals. It's another thing entirely to have to present that credibly visually. And, and in that context, all sorts of questions immediately pop up. How big would that thing need to be? Uh, where would they get the wood? Uh, how long would it take to make that? And then, of course, if you did manage to build it and you did manage to fill it, what would you do with all the droppings? <laughs> does, does Aronofsky, does he simply make things up? Because when I got home after watching it, I got out the Bible and there were an awful lot of discrepancies between the two versions. To an extent, yes and no. Now, what does that mean? In order to solve some of those logical dilemmas, he turns to a small section in the book of Numbers, a bit in the book of Enoch and some non-canonical writings and puts centre stage a group of fallen angels transformed into stone giants to assist Noah in the ark building task. Now, visually and narratively, that is as bizarre as it sounds. But uh, it has to be said, he hasn't, Aronofsky hasn't entirely invented those figures. Um, He's, if you like, he's drafted them into the narrative uh, to try to make the logistics of the thing work. Now, that's not the only difficulty the original story presents him with. Uh, Going back to my earlier thing of, well, where would the wood come from, Uh, Aronofsky then, in order to to make that uh, viable or make that workable, is forced then to fall back on a magically growing forest, uh, which emerges from a sacred seed given to Noah by Methuselah. Uh, And uh, then later on, when the ark is stocked, so to speak, uh, then there is the administering of sedatives to the animals uh, through the swinging of giant thurables uh, in order to cover some of the other uh, logical gaps in the story. Now, bizarre as much of this undoubtedly sounds, he's doing that in order to, to try and remain true to the internal logic of the narrative as it's set out. Aronofsky has described Noah as the least biblical biblical film ever made, and that, as you can hear, is true in a variety of ways. One of the things I would I would commend the film for, and, and uh, this is more about the spirit of the text rather than the letter of the text, uh, I commend it for its adherence to the spirit of the narr- the original narrative, uh, the sheer Old Testamentness, if you like, uh, of the film. Uh, what we see unfold uh, is a clash between justice and mercy. Uh, and the Old Testament is frequently more about justice than it is about mercy. It's not that Noah is bad. He's just a literalist. And this is where I come to what I, I see as, as, as the, the main theme or maybe the most significant piece uh, theme of the film. Despite the fact that it is his conviction that it is God's will to wipe humanity from the face of the earth, Noah is, when it comes down to it, unable to kill the two infant granddaughters. He says, when I looked at them, my heart was filled with love. And by not killing them, he thus guarantees that humans will, along with the animals, flourish again. The film is clear. Being a person of faith is not merely slavish adherence to a conviction, a code or a text. 
It's about being open to the transformative power of experience and how, if you like, insight and grace, found in unexpected places perhaps, challenge and transform. Noah, uh, as a film, is a spectacular grand folly. But that message I've just outlined is worth two and a half hours of anybody's time. OK, well, Barry, this is the last time we'll be getting together in this series anyway. As I said earlier, you and I go back a long way. And the feedback I always get about your reviews is always enthusiastic. So thanks very much for being a great contributor. And it's always been a joy working with you. Thank you so much, Jerry, and to you too. Next, we turn to Miracle Hill Productions and a dramatisation of St. Mark's Gospel, written and performed by Michael Mahoney, who joins us now on the line. Mike, why Mark's Gospel? Well, uh, first and foremost, I suppose it's the shortest. Uh, that was one thing. Uh, then, uh, when I investigated more, I realised it was written in the genre of the Greek tragedy. The take we have um, adopted is unusual. Uh, it distinguishes it from others uh, in that uh, we have... Uh, taken Pilate's uh, viewpoint as a uh, narrator. And you, you've not only adapted this, Mike, but you, you're also the only performer. So tell me how all that works. You see, if, if you do it as Mark, with Mark as reporter, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to get a sort of objective uh, idea, just a story. But whereas when you introduce it and put a prologue uh, uh, stating at the outset that it's an account of... Uh, Pilate's reminiscences, uh, being that if we go with the, with the legend of Pilate, that he had a conversion experience and to this day is said to be uh, a saint uh, in the Coptic Church. So once you have that, you have uh, a, um, an emotional and spiritual uh, way through it. Does the character of Pilate act out the other characters, if you know what I mean, or is it Michael Mahoney acting out the other characters? It's Pilate reminiscing. And that's the character I assume from the beginning. And at the end, then you see uh, the the uh, the narrator, who is, is is Pilate, and Pilate himself. They coalesce uh, at the very end. They do say too about Mark that it's the earliest of the four Gospels and and probably the most authentic, don't they? That's correct. Yeah, it was written in 68 AD, which is only 30, 33 or four years after the after the death and resurrection. So that it's. Uh, it's a preservation, really, and what they said is is that it's uh, uh, Peter's eyewitness account, as told by Mark, who was uh, who was meant to be a, a journalist, if you like, uh, a writer. And I believe that you involved the audience in an after-show discussion. What sort of reactions are you getting? What happens is again going back to telling the story from an emotional, uh, emotional, uh, and spiritual reminiscences of of Pilate. The effect seems to be quite strong in the audience, and they respond then in their comments afterwards from an emotional, react, reactive place. So that, like, when you think about drama, the highest point of uh, effectiveness of drama on an audience is a spiritual experience, really. That's the highest you can go, I suppose. So where can our listeners catch your production, Michael? At the retreat centre in Adford, uh, County Kerry. It's about five miles north of Tralee. At eight o'clock... Uh, every night of Easter week, except Holy Thursday, there's no performance that night, and all of uh, Easter week, Monday to, to Saturday. And is there a phone number that people can yes, get for the information? Is, yep. yep. It's uh, 066-713-4276. OK, Mike, well, we put that on our website. Thanks very much for talking to us and the best of luck. Thank you very much.
Another item that has come our way, which is happening next week, Holy Week in the Christian calendar, walking barefoot is something that children in Swaziland do, not by choice, but because many of them have no shoes. So next week you can choose to go barefoot and sponsor a pair of shoes for a schoolchild in that country. The campaign is organised by the United Society Ireland, an Anglican organisation, and you can get details from Linda Chambers at 086 858 6337. We'll put that up on our website for you. The Veil, a play by former head of radio drama Sean Walsh, is being staged by the Clontarf Players next week. Ronan Morris will give you details if you'd like to ring him on 087 800. As always, there will be full coverage of the Holy Week and Easter ceremonies on RTE Radio and Television. And on Sunday evening on RTE One Television, there's a special programme to commemorate the Jewish festival of Passover, or Pesach, and the Sikh Harvest Festival of Vaisakhi. Do check the RTE guide for details. Our phone number is 01-208-2039. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie. And our postal address is the Godslot RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. As we speak, Eileen Dunn is making her way home from covering the President's state visit in the UK. And she'll be back in the chair next week for our Good Friday special, when taking our cue from St John, when he tells us that at the Last Supper, Satan entered into Judas, we'll be asking who exactly Satan is, while we give the devil his due. Gadishian, Slana Gespenach. Because I gotta have faith. Mm-hmm.